Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a couple of American primates in conversation. This is how you have chosen to immerse yourself. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I am reporting to you, as always, from Los Angeles, California, for this, the 150th episode of the podcast. 150, 150. I don't know what that means exactly, but it does feel uh, like some kind of milestone. And I have to say that I'm a little surprised that I've done 150. That feels like uh, a lot. It feels like more than I thought I was going to do. So I want to thank you guys uh, for all of your support over the past year and a half. I want to thank you for uh, you know uh, spreading the word and so on and so forth. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful. That is a little redundant to say I appreciate it and that I'm grateful, but you know what I'm saying. So uh, I've got a wonderful show for you today. Jordan Castro is the guest, a very talented young writer, and because it's the 150th episode, I figured I would offer up something else, something interesting, a little something extra, a little bonus option, a little bonus option. And it, it kind of happened by accident. 
but I'm very glad that it did. Uh, I find it compelling. I find it enjoyable. And uh, I think you will too, or, or some of you will at least. So here's what happened in a nutshell. Last week, uh, I'm out with a friend. I'm out with Ben Laurie, actually, a writer uh, who has been a guest on this program, uh, a very fine writer, a buddy of mine here in L.A. We had dinner. We had drinks. We were catching up. And I got home at about 11 or 11.30, and I'm talking to my wife. And she's already in bed, and we're discussing something. And uh, at some point, I sent a text message to my friend Mira, and then suddenly my phone rings, and I pick up. And on the other end of the line is Megan Boyle, uh, who has also been a guest on this program, uh, a really wonderful writer and a very sweet person. And she is with Mira, uh, Mira Gonzalez, a friend of mine from here in Los Angeles, who now lives in Brooklyn. Uh, and she, too, has been a guest on this program and is a terrific young writer in her own right. And so Megan and Mira are in New York City together in Tao Lin's apartment along with a gentleman named Sam. So it's Megan, Mira, and Sam. Uh, Megan is subletting Tao's apartment while he is out of the country. They are in a festive mood. It is just the three of them. And eventually we started talking via Skype, uh, which I then recorded. And I'm going to play uh, you know, some audio from that conversation right now, like, like an excerpt, a sampling. Uh, and better yet, you can listen to an extended half an hour version, a 30-minute version of this conversation, if you so desire, by becoming a premium subscriber to the podcast, which is very easy to do. It's very cheap. And I'll explain all that in just a moment. But for now, uh, here is uh, an excerpt from my conversation with Megan, Mira, and Sam late at night last week as they hung out together in a festive mood in New York City. Wait, what if we started cybering right now? What I feel is, like it's more than cybering. Or like most or, of I can't here. do that. I can't do, I tried to do phone sex. It does not work for me. I can't do You can't do phone sex? No. You ever uh, done phone sex? I maybe had phone sex in high school. Brad, have you ever had phone sex? You know, no. I, I'm not that, my personality, I don't think I could do it. I don't think. Well, I, I'm I, the only yeah. person in this room that's into phone sex. I did like, I mean, I've had it once. But it, like, you yeah. didn't like it? No, I'm just like, oh yeah. And then you'll put it like. Yeah, because that feels good in me. Because I like it. Well, no, it's oh, but the secret is oh, to like boy. be less to make it less fantastical and more just literal. That's the oh, secret. It's yeah. like I'm masturbating right now. Interesting. You know? I did that. That on, works I, a lot better. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like yeah. you don't Literally even like masturbating. like put in the like fantasy world of like having. Well, yeah, I feel that like seems so much because I've tried that and it didn't work. But like, but then the times it has worked, it's just been more like. I'm literally describing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. In very unsexy seeming terms. I will yeah. say that like yeah, but when it's really it happens, that it is sexy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's very immediate. I did that once on video chat in like high school. Like the like masturbating on camera thing. Oof. Yeah. Right. I just like uh Zachary called me one time like as he was like coming from Portland. <laughs> and that was really good. That was really nice. He was Damn. like, Oh, I wish you were here. I love you. I showed Zachary my boobs that one time. I know really? you did. Yeah, I know you did. Zachary your boobs? Yeah, I did. It was really bad. Uh, so there you have it. That is a brief sampling of my conversation with Megan, Mira, and Sam. And uh, what can I say? It gets interesting. It takes many turns. It meanders. It will surprise you. It will make you laugh. It will give you pause. 
Perhaps it will even shock you. And if you want to hear the extended version, all like 34 or 35 minutes of it, it's very simple to do. You just have to become a premium subscriber to the podcast. So how do you do that? Uh, Well, what I would suggest first is that if you have a mobile device, uh, and you don't necessarily need one, but if you do have one, uh, as most of us do, what I suggest is that you download the app, the official Other People app. Uh, The app itself is free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, your Android device, whatever you happen to have. And once you have the app, you can then get access to every single episode of this program, including the full archives and including uh, this premium bonus content, this conversation with Megan, Mira, and Sam. So once you have the app, you open it up on your phone uh, or what have you, and you'll see that some of the episodes have a little padlock next to them. This is the premium content. Everything else is free. You get 50 episodes for free, by the way, the most recent 50. That's the way it works generally. Uh, And to get rid of that padlock, uh, to get access to that uh, locked content, you just subscribe. Uh, The quickest way to do that is to visit otherpeoplepod.libsyn.com. That's otherpeoplepod.lib as in boy, S as in stoner, Y, N, as in Nancy, Libsyn, otherpeoplepod.libsyn.com. And uh, from there, it's self-explanatory. You can pay with any major credit card. If you need more information, you can just go to the the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com, and click on premium access in the menu bar. That will explain everything in detail. So it's very cheap. It's a good, easy deal. You have options. You can pay $1.99 for a month of access. That's just $2.00. Uh, or you can pay $4.99 for six months of access or $8.99 for the full year. It's all less than 10 bucks any way you go. So I'm hoping that that sounds like a fair deal. Uh, think of it like pay-per-view. It's like an MMA fight. It's like a Mike Tyson fight. It's like porn. And it is available for a very nominal fee. Okay? Okay. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today, guest number 150, is Jordan Castro. He is the author of several books, including a brand new poetry collection entitled Young Americans, available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms, I'm so pleased to have him here. I happened to catch him at uh, an interesting juncture in his life, and I think you're you're going to like hearing what he has to say. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jordan Castro, the author 
of young Americans. Uh, I'm in Stolen, Ohio. Um, it's like a suburb of Cleveland. Um, and I'm sitting in my parents' basement in like this office room. Uh, we have like a recording booth and uh, just like a couple desks and chairs and stuff like that. So you live with your folks in suburban Cleveland, is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's born and raised. That's where you've. It's where you've lived your whole life. Yeah, last year I lived in uh, Kent, Ohio, when I went to school. But uh, now I'm living back here for until after the summer. Okay, and what what what's going on? So you 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 were in school and then you're out of school. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I went to school for a year. Um, you know, but I, I hardly ever went. Um, and I over the summer I decided not to go back. Um, what this was Kent State. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so over the summer I decided not to go back. Uh, I went to rehab for a while and, uh, I'm just living here trying to save up money. And then, uh, at the end of the summer, I think I'm planning on moving to Columbus, Ohio, but I'm not 100% sure yet. Okay. So wait, what, you went to rehab? Yeah, yeah. For, for what, may I ask? Uh, mainly opiates. But, you know, I was like every day using, you know, Adderall, Xanax killers stuff like that yeah you know i want to talk about that like if you don't mind i think it's like a if i feel like and you can correct me if i'm you know if you think if you feel differently uh but you know my i'm a little bit older so you know when i was your age uh, i think like it was like ecstasy pot uh then people started to get into a little cocaine and you know that was i mean i guess there were some like farm, like pharmaceuticals, you know, probably like, probably like barbiturates and stuff like that. You know? Yeah. But I just feel like nowadays it's like these, you know, these kind of like, you know, medical prescription drugs that are, I mean, I, I mean the statistics bear it out. Actually, there's, there's right. not much argument. It's objectively true, but I mean like you, like the Adderall and the Xanax and the, um, Oxycontin and yeah. you know, all that stuff, it feels like it's really pervasive, you know, and it, and yeah. I don't know. Like, how did you? Like, and first of all, like, how do people? Did you have a prescription for this? And then it no, just, no, no. It was all recreational. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's like it's just like the same thing as uh, anything else. Is you know, drug dealers who sell it, um, and you could just you know buy it off the street. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's it's easier to get you know Adderall as opposed to cocaine. Um, or oxys as opposed to heroin, and you know I've done cocaine and heroin, and I've done Adderall and oxy, and I, I do feel like you know heroin is just like a unpredictable, maybe stronger sometimes version of oxy, you know. So it's like with these drugs, it's just like you know what you're getting every time. Yeah, it's like a controlled. Uh, it's a controlled dose. Yeah, definitely, and uh, you know it, it seems I think to to a lot of people. Um, safer you know i mean based on what i hear people saying like you know people who would use oxy would never ever dream of touching heroin you know but it's essentially the same thing in my opinion yeah it is i mean the natural is essentially cocaine i mean right, you right. know these things are just sort of like trade-offs it's kind of crazy when you think about it yeah, yeah. Wild. <laughs> um but you know i know firsthand because i lost one of my very closest friends uh like a year and a half ago um like totally shocking and um, like extraordinarily difficult loss, but it, you know, it was due to these, you know, at least partially due to these, uh, these prescription drugs and just kind of like a bad accident as far as I understand yeah. it. And, yeah. 
you know, it, it can be really dangerous. It's like slippery, you know, and, um, Definitely. like where are you now? Are you sober or are you, are you still? Yeah. Yeah. I've been clean and sober for, uh, a little under 90 days. Oh, um, yeah. good for you. And thanks. Um, but you know, I mean, there are people who can, who can take drugs and, and, you know, there's no consequences. It's like fine, you know, they can use it for work or use it for fun. And that's like, you know, I've no, I'm not like against drugs or anything like that, but for me, it's just like most things I do, like, you know, I want to do it all the time, 100%, you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, it just got, you know, to a point where it was like, uh, in my opinion, like out of control, like, you know, I overdosed and used the next day or oh. like just, uh, what do you, you mean? Know, was, what do you mean overdose? Like you just like blacked out or started to, Yeah, I mean, like I was, uh, you know, like, Throwing up blood, hallucinating, passing out, waking up, throwing up blood, passing out, waking up, you know, I, like, just fell. And uh, it was, like, you know, my friends were, like, uh, you know, debating calling 911 and stuff like that. And I just, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, based on everything I know um, that, you know, would constitute as an overdose, I had been taking, like, Opana, which is, like, uh, oxy and morphine in one pill for, like, a handful of days. And then... Um, I was taking more tabs, which I thought were like five milligram Vicodins, but I think what I had were 10 or 20 milligrams, and I was like, you know, taking them all day with like Adderall and Xanax and all that other stuff, drinking too, probably. Um, and yeah, so it just it really fucked me up. And then, you know, the next day I was back, back doing the same thing. So, so what did, what was it finally that got you to, to go get some help? Um, I think just like, you know, like I was, I was in debt. I was, you know, horribly like emotionally and mentally unstable. Um, it was like, I was like completely neglecting like my friends, my family, anyone that I cared about, anything that I cared about. You know, I was like, uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's like, um, is it, is I think it, it just kind of like at one point, like I just kind of like had enough. I went to New York and, uh, uh, during Hurricane Sandy, I think was 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 it, and then when I came home, I like decided that you know I needed some help. I needed to get clean because like this went too hard, and like you know it was like I was doing a bunch of heroin and coke and ecstasy and stuff like that, throwing up everywhere, and just like when I got back, I like you know kept doing it. I couldn't stop, and you know even though I had no money, I don't know. It's it's, it's like a multitude of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because it's like I said, I've been using stuff like really like seventh grade is when i started taking painkillers for the first time so really seventh grade yeah yeah what yeah. were you what were you taking in seventh grade <clears throat> um you know my friend would like eat vicodin before computer class i remember um and you know i was smoking weed i got caught skipping school to go skateboard i had like weed in my backpack they didn't find it but um you know i was i've been doing it for for a long time <laughs> wow so yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, like you said, it's so hard. It's really hard for me to talk about uh, drugs. I've, I've tried it on this show before. I've talked to guests about it. And, um, you know, it's always it always leaves me conflicted because just like you say, like there are people who abuse drugs and, and who I think, you know, as far as I understand it, like you, you're biochemically predisposed towards um, addictive behavior. And I think some people yeah. some people have that and most people don't. Yeah, and, I mean, my grandma was addicted to painkillers, you know. And so it was, you know, I've, I had uh, an alcoholic and a gambling uh, grandpa, uh, stuff like that, you know, so I think it's kind of... Did you grow up witnessing it, or is it just something know. you know is in your bloodstream? I just know it's bloodstream. It's just blood. DNA. Yeah. 
Um, so, like you, so you, you said ninety days. You've been sober. You feel better. Do you feel like significantly yeah. better? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's like I don't want to sound like I'm like preaching sobriety because you know, like I said, like you know, most of my friends, I'm like totally fine with it, etc. But um, I really do feel better than I can ever remember having felt in general. You know, I just feel incredible. I'm like. You know, I'm, I'm reading again. I'm, like, writing a lot more, um, you know, healthy, exercising, waking up early, you know, getting sleep every night. Um, my relationships with, like, my friends are back on, you know, they're all right. Like, you know, I was stealing from all my friends and stuff like that, and, you know, they've luckily forgiven me, and I'm, you know, everything's all good. It feels great. That's awesome. And, you know, it's funny because people... Uh... When somebody's dealing with something like this and then they decide to, to, you know, turn it around or get help or whatever, like it's, it's usually like my experience has been that people are, un, you know, usually like really supportive and there's a lot of, it's like forgiveness comes easily. People are just happy to see you be well, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, but that's also interesting too, because it does present like, I think when you get sober, there's, um, and you can speak to this obviously better than I can, but you know, there's, uh, there's at least got to be some consideration of how it's going to affect your social life and like relationships, because so many of your relationships prior to stopping the using are centered on that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? Like you're with your friends and you're smoking pot and you're taking pills and you're doing whatever. And then all of a sudden you're no longer doing that stuff anymore. And maybe they are like, has it presented any difficulties or did you have any anxiety about like what that would do to relationships or, or no? Yeah, I mean, for the, you know, for the most part, like, I've always thought, um, you know, there's a difference between doing drugs with your friends and hanging out with your friends and doing drugs, you know, if, if, you, if you follow me, like, um, I feel like, in general, most of my friendships that have lasted longer than, you know, a couple of months are based on something other than drug use, even if, you know, they use drugs and I use drugs with them. Um, like, you know, like uh, there's a bunch of my writer friends or whatever who do drugs and I think that our relationships are still going to, you know, they're, they're still fine. Um, and, uh, you know, but in terms of re- relationships based just on drugs, you know, my year at Kent, I spent mostly at this house with a bunch of people, you know, um, I don't want to talk too much about it, but, you know, hustling or whatever you want to call it, um, trapping, uh, you know, using all the time and stuff. And, you know, it's just those people I don't, you know, don't talk to anymore. I don't hang out with them. It's not a big deal. Um, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I've never really had much of like a crazy, great social life and I don't really care much to have one. Um, You're not going to like start working the party scene or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, neither do I, you know, but, yeah. uh, you know, so like, cause this is a thing for me. Um, and it's along the same lines of trying to negotiate like the big wide gray area that is like drugs and drug use. But especially in the wake of, I don't know, I saw a lot of friends fall into addiction and, in, you know, my college years and then in my, you know, into my twenties and then you lose people. And that's when it gets really bad because there it's like casualties on the field of battle almost, yeah. you know, like that metaphor almost feels apt, you know, it's like not everybody makes it out of this stuff. It's dangerous territory. Right. And, and, you know, it can be, um, it, it presents the possibility for extreme tragedy. And obviously you hope that doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. And that has stung me personally. So 
when I look online, even, even with people I don't know, you know, like you just watch your Twitter feed and everyone's talking about, oh, I'm taking this or I'm taking that. And it, you know, they're having fun. Some of them or at least, you know, some degree of fun. And, and I remember those days and a lot of the times it was fun, you know, like pure fun. Right. right. And, you know, uh, then there's another part of me that's like, oh God, be careful. Um, and, and here I, I also have to stay, say that, um, you know, the, the, the drug that I'm like most, like, I guess preachy about, or I really like to warn people about because it, it affected, um, me and like my friend is uh, methadone, which is extremely, huh. extremely dangerous. Like I had no idea, um, but it's extremely dangerous. And, uh, if you Google it, you'll find out. And I didn't know this, you know, I had no idea how lethal it could be or how, um, you know, just how serious it is. And so I'm always saying, please, for, for whatever, you know, even if you're totally in control, don't ever take this recreationally ever. Like it's, it's that dangerous. So do you find yourself looking at your computer screen or interacting with friends and feeling worry? Or do you feel, you know, like a, I don't, I'm not in control. I'm just taking care of my own situation and everyone's got to be responsible for themselves. Like how, how do you navigate that? I don't really feel worried. Um, if, you know, it's, if, if if someone dies, then they die, and that's that. Um, I, you know, if I would have died, I just would have died, and that would have been that. Um, I I don't feel. I don't. Yeah, you know, I can't control anyone else, and I don't want to. I think like the desire to control anyone else would just result in frustration, um, and I don't. You know, I mean, obviously, I want best for the people that I care about um, but at the same time I can't tell them what that is and I don't know what that is and I you know right so it's it's just really like um, I think people you know can and, and do what they want to do and that's that's 100% fine with me yeah I mean I know I like I guess that's sort of that's sort of where like I wind up after like going through all of these like you know spasms of worry you know right, or whatever. Right, and, like, yeah. and there's also a part of me that feels like at least some degree of responsibility to um, communicate the danger or at least to just say, Hey, be careful, you know, <laughs> like, or something like that. I, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's unnecessary. Maybe it is like we're all adults and we have to take care of ourselves, but I also feel like we have to look out for each other too, you know, or, or yeah. I, I hope I that's mean, the case. The thing, I, I, in terms of addiction, I think like, um, at least for me and my experience and like based on what I've seen and heard, you know, uh, Someone who's addicted to drugs isn't gonna, you know. I had friends for for years saying, "Oh, you know, be careful. You know, worried about you." Da da da. da. But I, uh, you know, an addict is gonna do what they're gonna do until they they don't. You know, so. Right, that's exactly right. You know, they have to. You, you know, you have to be the one to say enough. Right, right. No one's gonna be able to convince you of that. So. Um, let's talk a little bit more. I want to know a little bit more about like your. I don't know, like where you're from, your childhood, what kind of kid you were. I mean, it seems like you've, it seems like you were a fairly introverted kid, or is that a misreading? No, I think, I think that's, that's correct. Um, you know, I grew up in, uh, in Solon, uh, Ohio, with, uh, you know, I have two brothers, two younger brothers. Uh, my mom and my dad are still together. Um, you know, I grew up like, whatever, um, I played sports until like seventh grade or so. Uh, what sports? Basketball, baseball, um, 
I played football for a little while, and then I broke my arm and quit. Um, Good athlete? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, not, not to, not to, you know, sound like that, but, uh, yeah, I played, like, travel baseball and basketball. And I still, like, play basketball sometimes. Um, but uh, I can see you as, like, kind of a scrappy, like, point guard or something. <laughs> Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> I'm from Indiana, uh, so I mean, I. Oh, you know, cool. We're in Indiana. Like Indianapolis suburbs, central. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I mean, basketball was huge, but it was like really, it was really competitive. You know, I was. Yeah. I was probably like, if you would have put me in most towns in America, I would have been like a pretty good basketball player. But you know, in Indiana, you had to be like really good to make yeah. to make the team, and I was too. That, I couldn't jump, and you know, yeah, I was, I was a white dude. Yeah, that's why I quit so young. You know, once it started getting serious, I was like, oh, whatever, you know, fuck this. And, yeah. Um, but I, uh, you know, I started, like, listening to, like, punk music when I was maybe sixth grade or so and got really interested in, like, politics and, you know, anarchism and stuff like that and started reading a lot. Um, so, okay, so wait a minute. Stop here. Because, like, this is, uh, every time I hear somebody say this, I find myself um, wondering why this didn't happen to me somehow. But like, what what triggered the the turn the turning to punk rock? Like, did somebody show it to you? Because you're the eldest of your of your siblings, so it's not like you had an older sibling who was like handing you records and telling you, you know, what to read. Like, what was it? Do you, do you remember? Was there an influence? Um, you know, an influence on I, you? Yeah, I mean, I kind of remember. Um, I used to like when I was really young, like maybe like third and fourth grade. I used to listen to like I remember like Nelly's Country Grammar came out and uh, Fifty Cent's Get Rich or Die Trying came out, and I you know that's like all I used to listen to. And I remember one of my I used to skateboard a lot, and one of my older friends was like, uh, I don't know. I guess you know I always hung out with older people, um, whatever, and uh, they. You know, they were like, oh, you're going to grow up to be a Wigger. I remember, like, one time specifically, and they uh, gave me an anti-flag CD. And uh, I remember that was, like, my first the first punk, quote-unquote, music that I ever heard. Um, and I liked it a lot. And uh, so I, I remember that. I think that was, like, the first. I think it was called Mumia's song, but anti-flag, that was, like, the first punk song that I ever heard. What, like a Mumia Abu Jamal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and then not long after, I read his the book that he wrote from Death Row or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so, I don't know. I think that was maybe how I got interested, you know, and then I was in a punk band for a while. I met a bunch of people in the punk, quote-unquote, DIY punk scene up here, and, uh, you know, we played a bunch of house shows and stuff like that, and I met, uh, you know, a bunch of friends who are interested in literature and writing and reading, um, you know, my friend Richard, who co-authored Think Tank with me, um, was, like, a big part of that. And, uh, you know, I just read. I read, like, so much. I would skip school and read. I would just, that's all I did was read and write. Some, like, what were some big books for you? What were some big books, aside from the Mumia book? Um, I remember The Stranger, like, was real. I mean, like, before, that, I was, you know, I read, like, all of, all of Bukowski and Kurt Vonnegut's books when I was in, like, 8th, ninth grade. Um, and then I think, like, in my freshman year of high school, I read, like, The Stranger in the Fall by Albert Camus, which were, like, made me, like, I don't know, affected me a lot. I read them, like, a bunch. I um, love I loved The Stranger. Like, that's one yeah. of my... I can reread that book, like, once a year, and it's, like... Yeah, I do. It's so good. It's so, like, deceptively simple, and there's, like, there's just a lot there to mine. I like it. Um... 
So you're young. I mean, that should also be said. You're born in 1992. Yeah. Uh, so you're, what, 20 years old? Yeah. So I feel like that there's uh, an advancedness in terms of, like, what you've been doing publishing-wise. Uh, you know, you, you you came to this at an unusually young age. I mean, you were... Like, when did you start to feel like I'm going to be writing and I'm really interested in participating in this? Uh, and then, you know, it's also, it should also be noted that, like, you were coming of age in this, like, with, like, full internet connectivity, which I think is really relevant because, you know, for people my age, it was something that kind of, you know, we, we transitioned into as adults. But, like, for you, it's just the air you breathe and it's the way that you've always experienced, at least to some extent, um, literature is that right mm, i wouldn't say that i mean i you know i really really i i, I want to say i loved the literature um you know from i didn't really know about internet literature or whatever until i was like 16 you know but uh, um or quote-unquote internet literature but uh, i was definitely you know interested i i still have notebooks you know filled with it from when I was, you know, 15 until, or I mean 13 until, you know, like 15, 16, and then, uh, you know, I just started putting it on the computer, and I remember I saw, I can't remember, one of my friends showed me uh, high-ass books or something, which was like <laughs> Alan and Ellen Kennedy's thing, and uh, I liked it, and I just remember like, you know, kind of clicking around and learning that you could just like email people, and they would publish your work and so I like sent a handful of poems to like I think it was Mad Swirl when I was like 16 and they published all three of them and I was like oh maybe you know maybe I can like do this or something and I just like kind of kept doing it I don't really know I didn't I don't really know what I was doing I just kind of like you know it was kind of cool that there were people who seemed like I could be friends with them um you know and then not long after I like you know met Noah Cicero because uh, he lives in Ohio too and, you know, we became great friends. I met Tao and all of them. And, Where did you meet Noah? Uh, I want to say he, I think he emailed me or commented on my blog or something like that. Um, and I met him and, and Brittany Wallace at a coffee shop in Kent. In Kent, okay. Yeah. Did you, when you were submitting to these places early on, you know, kind of when you were in high school and didn't quite know what you were doing, were you indicating your age? Or were you just sending stuff no, in? No, no so, I was just sending stuff in. So people had no idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this is like, I, I guess like part of uh, what I respond to in writing, whether it's online or anywhere, is increasingly is like I feel like there's something to people not having, uh, I mean, I don't want to say not having any idea what they're doing, but not having any like literary ambition that's, <clears throat> that's really explicit. And, do you know what I'm saying? Like, the, I find Yeah, yeah, it's real, like... That's, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have, like, there, you know, I hear people say, saying, oh, I want my writing to be remembered or read for generations, or I want, you know, to get into this school and win this award or you know, do this, then, uh, but, like, all I really want to do is just be real about it. Like, you know, I feel like writing is, like, an opportunity for me, to be honest, and, like, re just real. Like, I like, you know, people that, uh, there's no, like, ulterior motive, there's no, uh, I don't know what you call it, but... You know, that's what I like, what I feel attracted to. Yeah, and I'd say, yeah, I, I, me too. And I think, like, there's a, I was having this conversation last night, in fact, with a friend of mine, and it was like, uh, or no, I was talking to my wife, and I, you know, I, I get on these, these, um, 
I don't know, these sort of like trains of thought sometimes where it seems to me almost like the only writing that should be published should be something that you really urgently need to say. (laughs) Uh, And maybe that's wrong. I mean, I don't want to make like some sort of like broad proclamation of what people should and shouldn't publish, but there's so many books and there's you go into a bookstore and there's just millions of books. Like if I'm personally sitting down to try to write a book, I better have something that like I urgently need to say that I cannot contain and that like I won't feel well unless I write it down. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I think, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I never, writing just makes me feel good. You know, I don't like think about, for me personally, I don't think about like an audience. I don't think about, you know, it just makes me feel, it's like I feel like there are certain things I need to figure out or certain things that, you know, maybe um, I would just, I like, I want, I need to, I want to see written. It's like fun for me and, you know, there's people that can relate to it. Um, so, I don't know. But so, okay, so why, then why publish? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you ever think to yourself, well, you know, uh, this is fun for me. It makes me feel better. I'm working things out. There. Right, right. No, yeah, I guess, I guess I should say, um, I think I like publishing things because, um, you know, for me, it's like uh, other things that make me feel good besides right, is reading. You know, I like reading. Um, and I, I like, you know, when I read a book that I can relate to or read a book that, that really affects me, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's incredible. Um, and I think that the opportunity to share my writing with other people is, um, I, you know, I like, I want to take that opportunity. And uh, I think, I don't know, also, you know, it, I'm not going to, you know, it'd be great to make money from it. it, would, it would, I hate, I don't like school. I don't, you know, working a job is okay, but I would, you know, love to make money from it. It's hard to make money from it, but, you know, I think it would be, you know, it's what I want to do. So, you know, there's money. <laughs> that would, Yeah, I mean, it would be great. It almost feels like um, if it's happening, I mean, this gets so tricky for me. I, I clearly haven't worked it out in my own head, but it's like it almost feels to me like if you're doing it for the right reasons um, – you know, from, I don't know, like, ugh, it sounds so sanctimonious, like pure intent or whatever, or doing it from a really true place in your heart or whatever the hell you want to, you know, however you want to characterize it. It almost feels like then if you're going to have like, quote unquote, publishing success and you're going to be able to like monetize your writing, it almost feels like it has to happen by accident. Like the readers have to do it. Like they have to respond and share it and the sales have to happen as opposed to like, you know, you move to New York and start like working the party for scene, sure. like like we were for talking sure. about. And I think there, sure, yeah, I think there are writers who are really good at the latter. Like they're really good at like networking and right, right, yeah. I mean, like you know, I don't, I'm not interested in networking. I'm not interested in branding myself. I'm not interested in. Uh, I mean, I'm not not that I wasn't always like this. You know, there was a point in time where you know, I, whatever, I was caught up in that. But I don't feel interested in any of that. Um, I think it's irrelevant. You know, if I wanted to network and I wanted to brand myself, you know, I could work. I could, you know, whatever. I could do. I could just get a job. You know what I mean? Um, but, I mean, a job, a, some, not like a, you know, use of your job, some shit like that, but, like, I could just, you know, go to school, get a career, da 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 But I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to believe that there is something realer. Yeah. Well, it just can, it can make me start to feel bogged down and 
it can make me lose um, it makes me lose sight I think of what I like best about books and writing. You know what I'm saying? It can, it can consume you too. I mean, you start getting in, into all the rest of it, like all the marketing and trying to get yourself out there. And right, right. It, well, know. it's like it's like someone that you know. It's like if you are constantly thinking about what other, what other people may or may not think of you, you're not going to act. And then you you know, and you act based on that. You know, it's 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 fucked. It gets fucked up. You know, it's just like not it doesn't make any sense. So. D- do you make like explicit efforts to insulate yourself from, I don't know, like r- that sort of like from from like for instance, like who you f- follow on social media or what news you read about publishing? Like, do you? I guess it's like you could call it like media diet. I think I talked about this recently on the show, but it's like, do you make an effort to try to kind of filter out just so that you can keep yourself focused on? you know, the things that are more important to you as opposed to getting kind of caught up in that static? Um, I really don't think it's an effort that I, that I make because, you know, I think the effort would be in, in, in getting caught up in the static maybe, you know, like I just, I think it's a lack of effort. Like it's just, you know, on social media, looking at things that I like on the internet, uh, following people that I, that I like, uh, it's not like going out of my way to, you know, uh, you know, see what's hip or what's popular or what's working or not working. You know, it's just like what I like. And for me, that feels like uh, easy. Um, you know, I mean, I live, I, you know, I live in in Ohio with, with Mallory and, and my family. I'm not like, you know, surrounded by this stuff all the time. You know, I'm just, it's like on my computer and that's pretty much it. So it's not, you know. So wait, you you say you live with Mallory? Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mal, Mal, uh, shouts out Mal. She uh, she's at work right now. Um, but yeah, she lives uh, with me. So you guys are a couple? No, no, no. Oh, you're not. Okay, so no. this is Mallory Witten. Like, she lives in your yeah. parents' basement with you. <laughs> oh yeah, she she stays in my bedroom. I mean, she's you know she's like a part of my family. Uh, you know, we've been best friends for ever. And uh, did she go to school with you? Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. I'm just, I'm just piecing it together, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she, she, you know, she just, she, I don't know. She's just, she's great. She, uh, I don't know. I love her. And what's, uh, what does she do during the day? What's her day job? Uh, well, she, <laughs> she worked at American Apparel for, for a long time, and uh, now she just got hired at Mally's Chocolates. She's like a, the assistant manager at Mally's Chocolates or something. Okay. And so what are you doing next? I mean, like, first of all, like, um, your family has obviously been uh, supportive. You're living with your folks and, you know, you're getting kind of back on your feet. But, like, do you have a plan for what happens next? Like, are you going to go back to school or are you going to just get at work and keep writing? Like, what's do you have a sense of that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm still I'm still trying to figure it all out. Um, but... I, I'm definitely, you know, I just, uh, I went back to my to my old job uh, delivering pieces here. And I, you know, I was, like, uh, talking to them about, you know, working um, just to, like, you know, get more money, save up and stuff like that. But definitely, you know, writing is, is what I, you know, I go to the library every day for, for many hours and just uh, get to it, um, just write. Um, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on, I'm about to finish up a short story book, uh, trying to get a novel together, uh CCM just asked me to do another book for 2014, so I think I'm going to do that. Um, you know, just really uh, 
really just writing, you know, is my, is my, my focus. And you feel like you feel like you've made some sort of like lifelong commitment to that. Like, is that the way you see? Yep. Your... I mean, I just it's no option. Like, I don't I don't feel like uh, there's like for me, I don't feel like there's a backup plan or uh, anything else. You know, I just feel this is it. this is just it. You know. Right, right, right. That's how I felt, and I'm. It's, we're similar because I delivered pizzas. I remember saying, like, I have no plan B. I remember, like, you know, I just didn't feel like there was a plan B. And I don't think – there's a part of me that thinks you almost can't have one, you know? Like, if yeah. you're, you're going to go in, you sort of have to go in. But yeah, then, you know, now talk to me when I'm, like, 30, 37 and I have a kid and I'm like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's like – but, you know, I, I think that you have to sort of go um, – a long way toward making a commitment if you're going to try to do this. Like you can't do it halfway. I mean, it's just right. I mean, it's you know, it's hard. It's like it. Uh, it's like anything. You know, to be good at like people who are in the NBA, they you know they play basketball their whole lives, practice after school. You know, do all this shit, and it's just you. They, you know, like, that's what it is. You know, you do it. That's just how you do it. If you want to be a lawyer, you you go to school, get degrees, go to college, you know, study for it, whatever. And it's just like the same thing, you know. I'm just like, um, you know, putting it, putting in overtime, so to speak, just trying to do it. Yeah, you know, and I should They're say doing it rather than not trying to do it. Yeah, well, no, it's admirable, and um, I always say this, and my parents cringe when I say this, but I was like, the best like job job I ever had that I the one that I liked the most was delivering pizzas. I actually, oh yeah, oh, I, yeah. I really liked it, and yeah, I like uh, it. Too. I get some, cash, which is which is good, like under the table. Yeah, you get like eighteen. So, yeah, I was making like twenty bucks an hour on a good night. Yeah. Um, and it was cash and you'd walk out of there at the end of the night with like, you know, 200 bucks in your pocket or whatever it yeah. was. And I loved, like, there was something satisfying about being the guy who brings the pizza. People are happy to see <laughs> you as long as you're there on time, you know, like, yeah, yeah. And then the other part of it that I used to always say was like, you know, and this is kind of a stretch, but just bear with me here is that I used to say that like, there was something artistically satisfying about going to these different, uh, houses and apartments a person opens their door and you get like for, you know, 30 seconds, whatever it is, however much time it takes to give them the food, get the money and say goodbye. You get like a vignette of their existence by looking into their, you know, their residence or their abode. Yeah. You see like yeah. what kind of carpet they have and like what music is playing and what does the place smell? You know, you just get like this snapshot and then you're gone. And I don't know. I just, I, for some yeah, reason, I that mean, was yeah, I've never, you know, there have been, I don't know, just funny times. Like, I've, you know, been being invited into people's houses, and, you know, they have, like, eight bird cages in their living room with, like, <laughs> birds, or, like, you know, being invited in to drink beers with people watching games and stuff like that. It's, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, but I, mean, I, I think I think my favorite thing about it is um, I like driving, you know, just being able to drive and, uh, like, alone. And I like folding boxes, too. That's, like, um. Yeah, probably my favorite part, just like standing in a corner and, and folding boxes. For a couple hours. <laughs> totally, like you get you get good at it, and like you take pride in how fast you can fold them. Yeah, like, it's yeah. really really uh, mindless and like yeah, I feel like a robot. It feels good. Well, but you know, this is the thing about jobs that you have to do to make to win bread, so that you can you know have your time at the library to read and write. Is that you know, it's not just like any job that'll do you. It, delivering pizzas. Uh, I guess teaching just because of the way that the schedule works, though, you know, the grading can suck creative energy out of you. Like when you're reading like 50 essays by students. Are you, are you a teacher? 
Uh, not currently, but I have taught college and like, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of writers teach for that reason, because, you know, it's like you have like a kind of a flexible schedule and it's not like a 40 hour nine to five type thing. And, um, but you know, delivering pizza, like you say, you're in your car, you're listening to music, um, you know, and you're sort of, it, it's a job that pairs well with a, with a day spent at the library reading and writing. It's sort of like, I don't know, I can, I can, that it always worked that way for me. It's a good time to think, and yet it's sort of mindless, and you make people happy when you bring them pizzas. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's a noble profession. God damn it! I'll always say that. Um, so you don't know where you're going uh, immediately after this period at home is, but you you probably are going to stay in Ohio and go to Columbus. Yeah. Um, are you going to go back to school? I don't think so. I've been thinking about it, but I, I really don't want to. Um, I think like that, you know, the only benefit of going to school that I could see is like maybe, you know, taking some interesting classes and also my parents helping me financially because, um, you know, once I get out of here, uh, they're not going to help me financially unless I'm going to school. Um, which, you know, I don't want, like, you know, I, I feel like my immediate goal is to become financially independent. Um, you know, by the time, you know, summer ends, um, just be able to, you know, pay for my own everything right so i feel like you know I've, it's like i know i want to be a writer you know i don't i've never really liked you know writing classes or anything i just i feel like it would make it makes sense to just work and uh and write you know get money and write. do you know how to do like web design or anything like that i feel like people your age like everyone knows more than i do about like how to design stuff is that something that you like learned in school I mean, like I said, we had computer class when I was, like, younger. Um, but I don't, I'm not web design, no. I mean, I'm sure there are classes you take, but, I, no, I didn't learn, like, but we learned more, like, uh, how to make, like, graphs, and, like, each class had a, had a, what do you call it, like, a standardized thing that, like, we had to do X amount of projects on the computer. So, like, you know, we learned, like, I learned how to, like, lay out a newspaper and, like, uh, you know, make graphs and, and whatever on the computer, but I never learned what design now. Oh, you didn't? I was just thinking, like, I always think, like, God, I wish I would have learned how to, like, be a really badass web designer because that's something you can sort of do independently. And, you know, if you need money, it seems like everyone, there are people always need somebody to design a website. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But maybe, you know, it's probably harder than it lo- I just feel like that's something you could learn quickly and then you'd have it in the back of your pocket kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, so what do your folks do? Like, do you have, uh, like literary parents or anything like that? No, Not no. at all. My, my dad, uh, is a periodontist. He does like gum surgery and dental implants and stuff like that. And, uh, my mom doesn't have a job. Um, she used to do marketing for like a toy company or something before I was born. Um, but now she just like, uh, I don't know. She helps out a lot at schools and, uh, And like they, they they don't you know are they pushing you or anything like that are they supportive of your artistic pursuit or is, is it something that you sort of have to I don't know is there is there any tension there that you have to like navigate are they like pushing you to do something and you want to do this other thing or are they sort no, of no not not anymore I mean like no um, I think you know my dad is uh is really smart when it comes to business and things, you know, he owns his own practice and, uh, 
he's real good at like saving and managing money and stuff like that. And, uh, I think like now that I'm, you know, kind of taking this serious and like, uh, you know, I have like a plan. If he could see that, you know, I'm working and I'm, it's not just like, um, you know, writing in my journal every night and like, oh, da, 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 da. you know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, I don't know. I think they respect it. I don't know if they, you know, really understand or care too, but, um, there's not like tension or anything like that. No. That's cool. You know, that's lucky. Some like there, I know a lot of, uh, writer friends whose parents are not, not as understanding, you know, or at least not. Oh, they're cool. I mean, you know, they let like whenever like, um, people come into town, like, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Sam and Megan and how they've all stayed here and, you know, know my parents and stuff like that. Um, you know, take us out to dinner or whatever. They're, they're nice. Cool. Um, and so talk a little bit about, uh, you know, like I want to hear a little bit more about this, uh, this book tour that you did, I guess it was a few months ago. The, uh, what was it called? Like the, the, it was with Sam, uh, real, Sam and real, yeah, yeah. Real pain, future dead friends tour 2012. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was, uh, that felt sort of epic to me. You know, I was like following, mm-hmm. following that with interest online and it was just, yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. It was, it was, it was great. How did it originate again? I think Scott just Facebook messaged me and asked if I wanted to go on tour, and I said yeah. And uh, he asked uh, Mike Bushnell, and uh, I think I got in touch with him and Sam had been had been talking, and so we just got you know all linked up. And I asked Megan if she wanted to come, and now and uh, you know we made it happen. Me and Scott booked it. And then like highlights from the road, any any like you know stories that oh, we man. haven't heard yet. <laughs> I've. Oof, I really don't know. Um, uh, it was just—it was just everything was—it was wild. It was so fun. Um, I miss it. Uh, yeah, I kind of feel. I, I, feel remember, I, I feel like I heard that. I heard like when it was over, everyone was like depressed. Like, it was, yeah, it was, Megan. <laughs> Megan stayed at my house for like I want to say like a week afterwards. Just like we were all trying to desperately hang on to that. <laughs> Well, no, but it's like it's like summer camp or something, you know. Yeah, like the best best time of your life, and then you got to kind of go back to the real world, and it's like, fuck, you know. I mean, I remember one of the things that really sticks out in my head was um, when we we were sitting at like a like a gas station subway combination, like all really tired and on a bunch of drugs, eating subway, and then the bare naked lady song came on, the one that's like chickadee China, the Chinese chicken, and it was like really (laughs) loud, and I remember we were all just like. I don't know, depressed and like laughing or whatever is funny. <laughs> yeah, just little. Like well, one thing I remember, uh, I don't know, um, it, was, it was fun. Uh, Mike and Megan went to the liquor store and bought like two hundred dollars worth of champagne for the last reading. <laughs> we all each had our own bottle. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I don't know. It was just it was fun. All everything about it. I'm going on another reading tour too, um, in the middle of March, and then I'm going on another one at the beginning of April. So when okay, so when you go out, because obviously like the the real pain tour, um, you know, was festive, and you know you're on the road, and like you're out of like a controlled environment. Like I think you know living where you're living right now, it's a little bit easier maybe to like manage sobriety and stuff like that. Are you? Definitely. Is there any concern? Do you have like a strategy for how to like deal once you're like out in the wild, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, the first tour I'm going with my friend Richard. Um, and uh, we're going to, you know, like uh, Chicago, Detroit, New York, a couple places in Ohio, Bloomington, Indiana. Um, 
And uh, I just, you know, it's like, it's really just like a matter of me, like, um, you know, not really like, like, uh, you know, having a plan, just like kind of not allowing myself, like when we go to New York, you know, uh, on March 12th at the KGB bar, all the real pain featured at friends who were people are reading together. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of me, like not, you know, going to parties afterward or not, you know, because, you know, the truth, the truth is, is like, you know, if there's drugs right in front of me. I'm probably going to do so. I just have to kind of steer clear of that. What about like what about like are you in, is there any kind of like AA or support group? Yeah, or? NA. I, uh, I go to NA meetings sometimes. Um, yeah. So like I can like you know figure all that out and uh, just really stay focused, you know, um, on on what I'm there to do. Uh, what about what about communicating with your friends? Obviously, like your close friends all know that you're um, not doing drugs or drinking or anything anymore. Like, did you have to like make phone calls and kind of explain this or was there like a, mm. was there a conference call? You know, like, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, I just got, you know, kind of told my friends, um, most of my friends at that point were just like, you know, trying to convince me to go, um, to go where to rehab. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and like, as far as, um, no, I just, I just don't, don't think it's a big deal. You know, um, I don't think like my relationship with, with most people has been based off of drugs. So it's like not much, not big deal. You know, and plus like, I'm not, um, like I keep, I keep trying to reiterate. I'm not like, um, like the sobriety king running around like, <laughs> oh, da, 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 da. like, I'm, right. you know, it's total. like I still don't, you know, judge people or think less of people who do drugs i think you know drugs are great you know i love them that's why like (laughs) yeah you'd love them too much yeah yeah so it's you know not not an issue i don't think anyway yeah but i mean you know like and i i get that because like i you know i'm the same way like i just as soon as i start talking about it i start like talking in three different directions because it's difficult for me and i don't want to come across as being uh, preachy or like, uh, you know, like I've got it all figured out. But at the same time, like when you're trying to be sober, there is some element at least of like, you need support from your friends and you, they need to be aware of it because if they're still doing drugs and partying, like they have to have some consciousness of your situation and sensitivity to the danger or whatever. Right. I mean that, that there is. Yeah. That yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, um, Mal has been a uh, great, she's really helped me. She's, you know, been clean and sober too for a while. Um, so like she's you know real supportive, um, but in terms of like, I don't know. I mean it's like at the end of the day I just feel like it's at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> I I just I feel like um, it's not on anyone else whether or not I stay sober or use like um, you know I've really like I feel like I've learned a lot in in treatment and, and you know the reading um i just feel like i have the tools that i need to stay clean and sober and um regardless of whether or not people are supportive but it's great when people are supportive yeah well and like what can you talk a bit about like the treatment process like you went was it like a 30-day inpatient thing or did you were you, you... Know, I, I did um i did Two weeks of partial hospitalization, so that was like every day from eight to two p.m. And then after that, it was uh, intensive outpatient for like six or eight weeks, um, which was like three days a week. Um, and then 
now I go back every Thursday, um, just to like, um, you know, pee in a cup, go to the group therapy thing, talk to the doctors, etc. Um, and like when I was, when, you know, during PHP or IOP, it was, uh, you know, we started off the day meditating and then for like 15 minutes we went to an education class where they, you know, taught us about stuff or we watched videos or there's a lecture or something and then we had a group therapy session where we all talked and then um, lunch and then another, like, uh, education type thing. You know, it's funny, like, you, the, the group therapy, like, I've been to AA meetings. Like, I remember I was working on a... Uh I was working on what I thought was going to be a book where the character might be an alcoholic and I wanted to like do some field research. Um, and I went to a a meeting, uh, in Los Angeles and like, it's pretty intense. It's powerful. You know, like I almost recommend it to anybody regardless of what their situation is just as like an experience, you know, like it's just like, it felt like, uh, what's it's like profoundly human or something like that. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like I think there's, just like anything else, there's going to be bullshit. You know, I think there's a lot of AA meetings you could go to where, like, it, it's really the people make it, in my opinion, you know, so there's going to be, like, some meetings you go to where people are, like, oh, just, like, kind of preaching and, like, saying recited slogans and shit like that. But at the same time, like, you know, there's, like, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, is like, a 12-step program, too. And uh, it's really just, like, you know, the first couple steps are about, like, coming to terms with, like, your powerlessness over your addiction, like accepting and understanding that you have problem and that there are things that you can't control. So like, I think anyone, everyone has things that they can't control, you know, whether it's other people or whether it's how so-and-so acts or whatever, you know, death of someone. And then the next things are just about like, um, you know, asking for help. Like the next handful of steps are essentially just about asking for help, you know, which I feel like is something good. And the other things are just like about, you know, taking a moral inventory, like really looking at yourself and, and changing. Did you do that? Like, did you write stuff? Cause I know those steps and like, I think those are like, again, like there's so much about it. I remember Kurt Vonnegut in one of his essays, or he used to say this in interviews repeatedly, but he was like the most effective, like spiritual organization or church or, you know, whatever you want to call it is AA, um, because people are actually getting up and like testifying and like there's actual community and people are helping one another and like mentoring one another. And like, there's real like social connectivity. Whereas like you go to some other uh, church or whatever, and it's like, you walk in, you listen to somebody talk to you, you know, for an hour and then you walk out or maybe you have a, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a religion. It's like a, you know, I don't know, but just like in its function, do you know what I'm saying? Right, like, right, in, right, terms right, of, right. In, in terms of like community building or yeah. like just human beings connecting in a real way. Um, That's- and so, I don't know. I think there's something like, to that. Yeah, I also like it because it's, you know, connecting over, like, uh, what, am, what am I trying to Like, um, everyone there is, like, has problems, like a lot of problems. And there's not, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. No, I think, but, I think, I mean, let me, <laughs> let me guess, because I, I, it's like humility yeah, um, yeah. And there's like an openness and yeah. there's not anybody up there in front of you who's like operating under the guise of like, I've got this all figured out, <laughs> you know? And then and there's there's some sort of like social glue, like those steps, like they're objectively 
pretty sane, you know, like you got problems like, like the moral inventory, like sit down and write this shit out. Like, you know, like anybody could stand to do that and would probably benefit regardless of what their relationship to substance is. You know, that's what I was sort of saying. And then like the, yeah. um, the amends process, you know, like is another thing that's like, you know, healthy, you know, like on a human level. And there's so many of us, again, regardless of our relationships with substance who carry around guilt or, you know, weird feelings about how they might have, you know, interacted with somebody in the past or hurt somebody in the past. And like, this gives you like a roadmap about how to like address those things. And like, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm still not sure. Like I haven't worked the steps or anything. I'm still not sure if I'm going to, I think, I think I probably will. I don't, I'm not sure about the, the whole amends part just because of like, you know, wondering what's relevant or, or what I really need to do to feel okay about it or whatever. But, um, you know, cause I, in terms of like all my friends that I've stolen from and shit like that, you know, I've, talk to them about it i've already apologized and stuff like that um, right but uh i don't know i mean i do think that it's like a a pretty pretty good thing i'm not like still 100 percent, you know like for it or whatever i'm not like but i do like it you know it's like essentially you're just like going taking an hour of a day to like talk to some people and like listen and i think it really really it for me it it, it helps it helps you know just talking and listening because it's wild like all the problems that i thought were like uniquely my own right or are like and it's, it's it's almost laughable because everyone there most of the time is, is had the exact same problems emotionally mentally whatever you know but that's powerful i mean like and even yeah, like even like it's, i mean really, it's like reading a book that you relate to or something it's, it's precisely it's, or listening to a podcast where two people talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, just like, I mean, like uh, on a related note with regard to amends and then we can move on. But like I remember uh, like a buddy of mine uh, has been sober for years and years. And I, I hope he doesn't mind me like sharing this story because it's always stuck with me. Like it was particularly powerful. Uh, he's a really great guy, like super smart. And he's been sober for like 15 years now. And um, I don't know, just one of my best, best friends. And <clears throat> he was talking to me about going through like that process of amends. And it was like, I mean, he really went the distance. Like there were, I guess when he was in high school, he and his buddies had gotten like drunk and had vandalized somebody's house, like pretty badly, like just, and, and sort of just indiscriminate. They were just drunk and having fun in some suburban, you know, suburban neighborhood. And they like wrecked these, these people's backyard, just like broke furniture and threw stuff in the pool and, just did some serious damage, essentially. I forget the exact damage that they did. But anyway, like, you know, he then, like, you know, seven or eight, nine years later gets uh, gets sober and is going through this process. And he actually went to their house and rang their doorbell and uh, was terrified, like just like shaking, you know, like didn't even know if they still live there, I don't think. And uh, this woman answers the door and he explains himself and she invites him in. And she and her husband sit down and he like pours his heart out and says how sorry he is and confesses. And these people were like so relieved because they had always wondered like, what did we do wrong? Like who in our neighborhood wanted to do this to us? And like, you know, like uh. it was like, it brought great relief to them. And he wound up like cutting them a check for like 10 grand or something, you know, it was a big number. Yeah. Um, but he did all this damage and they accepted it. He's like, I want to pay for this. And like that, I think is like, majorly healing and like i've always like it gives me the chills to even talk about it for some reason you know and it's just like this stupid thing you do when you're 
16 and drunk or whatever, you know? And yeah, it's wild. Super wild. Super wild. So, uh, anyway, man, I, it's, it's, I, I congratulate you. I think it's, uh, I think it's awesome that you're, that you're sober and that you're taking this stuff on and that you're taking care of yourself, you know? Thanks. Um, and so, I don't know, like, uh, young Americans, like you want to talk yeah. about it and like just how, how it happened? Like, did this happen? Were you writing these, uh, you know, this stuff before you stopped using or was this, that's correct, right? You were writing yeah, yeah, pre-sobriety. Definitely. So um, when you read these, when you read this stuff now, are you like, uh, do, do, you know, what do, what do you feel or do you feel, you know? Does yeah, it, yeah. I mean, I like it. I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, I, I think that I documented like certain thoughts and certain, uh, ways that I felt like very frequently. I feel like I documented a part of my life, uh, pretty well, um, and what is what is I mean what part of your life do you feel like this captures like is this like a particular I wrote it I wrote it like my junior and senior year of high school um, so that period like where it was like I was kind of like just started using drugs every day um, I think and then like you know from I was pretty much using drugs every day the whole time that I wrote the book. Um, I would just, like, wake up, you know, take an Adderall on some painkillers, smoke weed, hop in the shower, get to school with a pocket full of pills, you know, take pills throughout the day and just write. Like, that's all I did at school. So, um, did you get good grades in high school? or No. Not at all? No. I, got, I think I graduated with, like, a 2.2 or something. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Um, I like it. You know, I still... Well, and it's interesting too because it's another like uh, another element of the complexity of uh, drugs, and you know, and particularly like their relationship to creativity is that um, you can do really interesting work <laughs> under the influence. And I think it's a candle that burns at both ends. I mean, I don't think I tend to think that like the window isn't very wide or whatever. You know, like eventually your your brain doesn't work as well creatively if you keep abusing drugs but like yeah i mean i didn't it definitely i you know i didn't my creativity uh and like productivity suffered at the end for sure at the end but like during this period when you know you're in high school and no way i mean like at the very at the beginning it was you know it's like i would stay up for days on adderall and you know all that and taking painkillers and xanax and stuff and i was on fire like i would just you know it was great um it really was. It really, you know, but, and then eventually it was, I was, you know, staying up for days doing the same thing, but not really getting anything done. Right. How long did, how long did like a good, how long did the good period of creativity last? Do you, can you measure it? Like, do you have a sense of it? Was it like a year? Maybe like a year and a half, two years. Yeah. That sounds about right. The last year was like, Did you, and there was like not much creative productivity at all? No, I mean, there was like just enough for me to believe that there was, you know, a, a lot, but not as much as I would, I'm doing now or would ideally be doing. Right, right. Well, it's, uh, it's been really fun talking with you, man. And, uh, again, I'm happy for you, uh, not only, um, for the fact that you're, 
you know, you're feeling better and you're, you're doing better, but also, you know, congrats on the publication of the book. And, uh, I wish you, uh, a lot of luck with, uh, all the projects that you're working on now. I'll be interested to see what you publish in the, in the years to come. Thanks. Oh, wait, I also want to say I have a book coming out March 26th, another poetry book called, if I really wanted to feel happy, I would feel happy already. So. And, and who's putting that? Is that civil coping mechanisms as well? No, uh, black coffee press, black coffee press. Yep. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, thanks again, Jordan. Really appreciate it, and, and it was great talking with you. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. That's it. That's Jordan Castro. Go get his new poetry collection. It is called Young Americans. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. You can find him online at animalsorrow.com. Uh, he's got a Tumblr. He's on Facebook, I believe. And you can find him on Twitter as well, where his handle is at Jordan underscore Castro. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the uh, the official Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android. You can subscribe to Premium via the app. You can listen to my late night conversation with Megan, Mira, and Sam uh, in full. It's a good one. Things get interesting. Uh, I like it when that happens. I think we all do. And I should add, uh, just, to, just to clarify, that when it comes to paying for premium, uh, the payments are recurring. So if you sign up for a month and it's 2 bucks, you will continue to get charged 2 bucks a month uh, until you cancel. And if you sign up for the six-month thing, then you'll get charged four ninety nine every six months. And if you do the year, then you'll get charged eight ninety nine for the full year. So depending on how long you want premium access, uh, you know that's how you have to make your decision. But I did want to clarify that. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Please remember that Orson Welles died of a heart attack and that Aldous Huxley died on the same day as John F. Kennedy. Thanks for being here, folks. 150 episodes. I will be back uh, with a new one in just a few days on Sunday, the day of the Lord. Have a nice, enjoyable time for the rest of uh, your morning, your afternoon, your evening, whatever it happens to be doing for you right now. Time-wise, take care of yourselves. Drink plenty of water. Stay hydrated. Uh, I love you. (laughs) 